All right, settle down now, settle down. Save some for heaven, for goodness sakes. All right, good to see you guys. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 15? And let's just get a running start at tonight's study by starting at verse 1. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven, and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Now, last week we got as far as verse 6, a verse we said was one of the most, if not the most important verses in the entire Bible. Now, I don't say that lightly, but only because Genesis 15, verse 6, lays the foundation for the greatest doctrine of the Christian faith, the doctrine of justification by faith, apart from works. And if you weren't here last week, uh, go online, listen to that message, because we really talked about verse 6 in detail. But this evening, we'll start now with verse 7. Uh, then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldees, or the Chaldeans, to give you this land to inherit it. I find it interesting how God phrases this, how God seems to be introducing himself to Abram again. All right, as if God was a stranger to him. And I think, sadly, we sometimes force God to do this. We uh, sometimes treat God like we've never met him before uh, when we're going through certain trials and adversities, which kind of forces him to say, uh, remember me? Okay, uh, The Lord, God Almighty, the one who promised to take care of your needs and provide for you and so on? It kind of reminds me, We just I couldn't believe we sang this song tonight, uh, that really was from this story in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14. You remember how that, um, after a busy day of ministry, Jesus told the disciples to get into the boat and cross over the Sea of Galilee to the other side while he went up on a mountain to pray. Well, you remember the story. It was a full moon and uh, Passover time, and so a windstorm came out of nowhere, and the disciples were struggling on the Sea of Galilee for five, six, maybe seven hours. Uh, they'd only gotten about halfway across and thought they were goners, okay, exhausted, no doubt. Uh, it's the third watch of the night, so sometime 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock, and uh, suddenly here comes Jesus walking to them on top of the water. They thought he was a ghost. They were they freaked out. Uh, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. Well, the Greek is, I am. And that, of course, is the name of God. It's like Jesus is saying to them, Look, what are you afraid of? I'm the great I am. Did I tell you to go across the Sea of Galilee? If I tell you to go over, you won't go under. And so he had to kind of remind them of who he was and that when God tells us to do something, believe me, we'll have the strength and the protection to do what he's called us to do. So I just feel like, you know, Abraham was forgetting. I mean, time was going on. Clock was ticking. He wasn't getting any younger. Uh, neither was his wife, Sarah. So, uh, 
you know, the Lord had to just remind him once again, I, you know, I made you a promise. And when I make you a promise, Abram, I am going to fulfill it guaranteed. In fact, something very important is about to happen in this chapter. Let's kind of get ahead of it by turning to Hebrews chapter 6. We're talking about this promise that God made to Abram. And the writer to the Hebrews, who I believe was Paul, keys in on this very thing. And let's pick it up in Hebrews 6, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Isaac was born. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, the unchangingness of his counsel or his promise, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and and steadfast. Listen, just how God's promise to Abram has brought hope to us who are Christians, who are members of the new covenant, hope that the writer says is sure and steadfast, uh, like an anchor for the soul, how that affects us, the promise God made Abraham, we're going to find out in a moment. So hang on to that thought. But verse 7, once again, then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldees. That's where Abram Abram lived, the Ur of the Chaldeans, modern-day Babylon, area of Iraq. He said, I brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. Now, part of the covenant that God made with Abraham, we've already looked at it, okay, uh, called the Abrahamic Covenant, was that God would give to him a people. That was part of the promise, that God was going to give to him a people. Turn to Genesis 12, verse 2. Let's just review quickly, since God's talking about this covenant again. Genesis 12, verse 2, God said, I will make you a great nation. So I'm going to give you many people. I'm going to give you many descendants. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Genesis 13, verse 16, and I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be Numbered. So first of all, God promised Abram a people. Secondly, he promised Abram and his descendants a land, a land. Back in Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country, that would be the earth of the Chaldeans, from your family and from your father's house to a land, to a land that I will show you. Verse 7, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Chapter 13, verse 14. And the Lord said to Abram, After Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. Verse 17. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. So now in chapter 15, God is reaffirming the promise that he had made to Abraham. Again, verse 7, Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you 
this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him, to God, and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. God had already made a verbal promise to Abram to give to him and his descendants the land of Canaan. But now he enters into an official legal covenant or contract with him. And there are those that say Abram sinned against the Lord at this point by asking God to enter into a formal covenant with him instead of just taking him, the Lord, at his word. But I want you to notice the Lord doesn't rebuke Abram for that, does he? He doesn't rebuke him. Why is that? Because God wanted his promise to Abram reaffirmed or seconded, okay, to add force to it, to make it absolutely sure. Back in Hebrews, and you have to really turn there, but back in Hebrews 6, we just read it, but let me now read it again in light of this very thing, because this is exactly what the writer is saying. Hebrews 6, verse 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, that would be the verbal promise we just talked about, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Verse 17, Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, that's us, the immutability of his counsel, the fact that God's counselor's promise never changes. That's what immutable means, unchanging. Confirmed it by an oath. That would be the official covenant we're reading about right now. That, listen, by two immutable things, God's verbal promise and uh, the contract or the covenant he made by blood through two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation. So here we have, or we see in Genesis 15, God entered into a formal covenant with Abram by cutting animals in two. That's how they did it back then, all right? That's how they did it. The word covenant actually comes from a Hebrew word that literally means to cut, to cut, which meant it was a covenant of blood, or as we would probably call it, a blood covenant. Now, the idea was that once the animal, or the animals in this case, were killed and cut in two, to ratify the covenant, both parties had to walk through those animal parts. And guys, it was a pretty serious thing because it brought with it a self-imposed curse should either of the covenanting parties break their pledge. That's what they were doing, making a promise or a pledge to one another to fulfill certain terms. You're entering into a covenant with somebody. Okay, well, he's got terms to fulfill. I've got terms to fulfill. If either one of us doesn't fulfill our terms, the covenant is null and void. It was a very serious thing from what I understand as I studied this, uh, especially today. Very serious thing. They were in essence saying, if I break my word, may I become like this severed animal. So it was pretty serious. You didn't enter into one of these covenants lightly is the idea. Look, the nearest scriptural parallel to this comes out of the time of Jeremiah when the leaders of Jerusalem made a covenant with the Lord to free their slaves and then they turned back on their word, or they went back on their word. This brought the wrath of God upon them as God sent the prophet Jeremiah to them to tell them the judgment that was awaiting them now. In fact, you can turn to Jeremiah 34. We'll read this. So they made this covenant with the Lord. God t takes this covenant very seriously. In fact, at one point in Scripture, he even says, I am a covenant-keeping God. 
I'm a covenant-keeping God. When God makes a covenant, he keeps it. And he expects us, if Jesus could say in the Gospels, let your yes be yes and your no be no, how much more so a formal agreement, a covenant made by blood, did God expect a person to keep? So they made this promise to release their slaves, made a covenant with the Lord, cut an animal in half, walked to the middle of the animal, yet they broke the promise. And in Jeremiah 34, verse 18, we read, God is speaking, and I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not performed the words of the covenant which they made before me, when they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts of it, the princes of Judah, the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land, who pass between the parts of the calf, I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. Their dead bodies shall be for meat for the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the earth. You think God's serious about covenants? He certainly is. Certainly is. Back to Genesis 15, verse 11. Abram goes ahead and kills these animals, cuts them in half, lays the pieces on the ground. Now, He's waiting on God to make the next move. Because he's just done what God has told him to do. We read verse 11, And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, of course, the vultures came down because they're birds of carrion. They're, they're, they eat uh, dead things, okay? So, obviously, from a practical standpoint, that's what vultures do. But I really think that, uh, if we look at this a little bit spiritually, not that it didn't really happen, it did, I think there's a little spiritual thing or a lesson going on here. In Scripture, vultures are often used to represent Satan and his demons. And I believe that the vultures that tried to devour the animals before the covenant could be ratified, I believe, could represent uh, the attacks of the enemy against the covenant God made with Abram and the children of Israel to keep them from possessing the land God had promised them. We see these attacks today. To this very day, we see these attacks going on. That Israel, they say, is occupying Palestinian land. Uh, it's not their land, okay? It's the Palestinian. Israel took it from them. That's a lie. God gave that land to Israel. They say things like the promises that God made to Abram and his descendants were null and void because they, they, uh, the Jews rejected Jesus and him crucified. And you'll hear this from Christians, okay, who are trying to replace Israel with the church. And saying, look, Israel forfeited these promises, all right? And land was part of it. So the land isn't theirs anymore. In fact, they're not even the people of God anymore because they rejected their own Messiah and so on and so forth. Well, as we're going to see, and we'll just leave it with regard to the land right now, all right? As we're going to see in just a minute, that was impossible for Israel to forfeit the promise of God. It was impossible. I'll show you why in a moment. So verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Guys, the word for sleep in Hebrew is the same word that was used of Adam when God put him to sleep. Remember that? Okay, God knocked him out. Adam was naming all the animals and saw there was no, nothing that looked like him. and he, All the other animals had a partner, but he didn't have anybody. And so the Lord knocks him out. Okay, puts him to sleep. Same Hebrew word, all right? And while Adam was sleeping, he took from his side a rib or some DNA or whatever God did and use it to make Eve, his wife, right? Well, he does the same thing here now to Abram. He causes Abram to fall into a deep sleep. Verse 12, And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, 
Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. Of course, talking about their slavery in Egypt. Okay, The word afflict is the same Hebrew word used uh, in Exodus to describe the oppression that uh, the Israelites experienced in Egypt uh, as they were slaves down there and they were harshly treated and so on. The word afflicted, they were afflicted. Uh, treated very harshly by uh, Pharaoh and uh, the Egyptians. One author said this, and I quote, This was the historical outworking of Abram's vision of birds of prey descending on the slain animals. It is possible that the carrion birds directly referenced his descendants' abuse at the hands of the Egyptians because the Egyptian falcon god Horus was a carrion-eating bird. Okay, I thought that was interesting. I share it with you. Another commentator, Arthur W. Pink, uh, I thought had some good insights into this from a spiritual standpoint. He said, and I quote, A profound truth is here taught to us in type. Abram now learns that the inheritance can only be reached through suffering. His heirs would have to pass through the furnace before they entered into that which God had prepared for them. In the deep sleep and the horror of great darkness, Abram, as it were, entered in spirit into death as that through which all his seed would have to pass ere they experienced God's deliverance after the death of the Passover lamb. So what he's saying is this. God promised Abraham a glorious inheritance, okay, that his family would inherit someday. He would live to see it. But now God reveals to him, before you inherit this beautiful land, this flowing with milk and honey, your descendants are going to have to suffer. They're going to have to suffer. Now, Pink says spiritually that applies to all of us who are children of Abraham by faith. Because he quotes from uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 17, and of course you all know it, how uh, Paul says we're all children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Listen, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And all the way through we see all the way through God's word we see this with regard to the promise that God made Abraham, okay, and his descendants. And and of course it affects Jesus because Jesus came from Abraham. We've already looked at how there's a connection there. But even as Christ didn't enter into his glory until he first suffered, Paul says, you know, as as children of God and followers of Christ, God has got a glorious inheritance waiting for us in heaven. But right now we're on earth where we are going to suffer. In fact, uh, it, the Bible says that if we don't suffer, we don't belong to Christ. You know, Jesus said, rejoice when you're persecuted for my name's sake. You know, And they revile you and say, all manner of evil against you falsely for my name. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. First comes the suffering, then comes the glory. In fact, when the, Paul and Barnabas were going back uh, through the cities that they had preached the gospel in, where churches were started, they were encouraging the saints, Acts 14.22, saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. So that could be in type what is happening here. God is teaching a little spiritual lesson through this, that um, before the inheritance could be realized, Abraham recognized that there was going to be a horror that would come upon the Jewish people in the form of brutal slavery that they would endure for years. Now, let me just say this. There are those critics of Scripture that pounce, okay, pounce on Genesis 15, verse 13, where God told Abram, Know certainly 
that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, that would be Egypt, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. They point out that this number, 400 years, was also repeated by, uh, by Stephen when he's given his defense before the Sanhedrin. In Acts chapter 7, verse 6, he's talking about their history. He said, but God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them, listen, 400 years. Say, okay, what's the big deal? Well, critics point out that in Exodus 12, verses 40 and 41, we read this, and it seems to contradict that number. Now, the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, on the very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Israel. So they said, look, you've got some saying they spent 400 years in Egypt, the others places 430 years, contradiction. Not really, because the 400 years mentioned in Genesis 15, Acts 7, refers to the time of Israel's affliction, the time of their affliction in Egypt. The time, listen, after Joseph died, a new pharaoh came to power, a pharaoh that didn't really know Joseph, didn't care about Joseph's family, and he began to persecute and afflict the Jewish people for 400 years. Well, he didn't do it. That began the persecution of 400 years, but he started it. Now, before that, the first 30 years that Jacob and his family spent in Egypt when Joseph was still the prime minister. They weren't afflicted at all. They were treated like royalty. So there's no contradiction here, guys. The critics want to jump on these things, but look, they were afflicted the 400 years in Egypt. The first 30, though, they were not afflicted. And so that's what the scriptures are saying. All right, Genesis 15, verse 13. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So after um, Israel was in Egypt for 400 years, when God brought them out. Remember what he told them? After all these plagues and things that God brought upon the Egyptians, God said, now before you go, you ask all your Egyptian neighbors for gold and silver and earrings and everything else. That's your back pay. And of course, the, the people of Egypt were only really too happy to give these people whatever they wanted to get them out of here because they had suffered tremendously in the plagues that God brought upon Egypt. So they did leave with great possessions. A lot of those possessions were used to build the tabernacle and all the gold and things that were used in the worship of God in the wilderness. So that was, some of it went for that, okay? But he says to Abram, look, this affliction is not going to affect you, okay? You're going to have it fine. I'm going to take care of you. You're going to die a good old age, all right? But in the fourth generation, your descendants shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, a generation in the Bible is about 40 years, about 40 years. But here, possibly due to the fact that people were still living well over 100 at this time. Abraham died at 175. Okay, It could be at this time a generation was closer to 100 years. Uh, I think that's probably what's going on here. 
But listen, guys, the most important piece of information in these verses is not the length of a generation. It's the duration of God's patience towards sinners. Listen to what he's saying here. God is saying that he was withholding his judgment upon the, uh, the Amorites. That's just a generic term for the Canaanites. There were different peoples that lived in the land of Canaan. But together they were called the Amorites. All right? And God is saying that he was purposely withholding his judgment from the Amorites. In fact, he would withhold it for another 400 years until, listen, they had filled up their iniquity, or in other words, they had exhausted God's grace. And at that point, God would have no more recourse but to judge them. 400 years. God's very patient. God is very patient. In fact, in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, a verse we read Sunday, Paul says, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? So God is patient. Yes, he has to judge sin, but he always wants to give people time to repent. And that's exactly what he was doing with the Amorites or the Canaanites. Now, you have to understand, when you, under, when you understand what the Canaanites were involved in with regard to sin, you can see how patient God really was. All right? In fact, according to F.W. Albright, the eminent archaeologist, he says the three principal goddesses of the Canaanite pantheon was uh, Astarte, another otherwise known as Ashtoreth, uh, Aneth, and Asherah. Uh, they were primarily goddesses of sex and war, but they combined the two together. Okay? Everything in Canaanite culture revolved around perverse sexual practices. In fact, when God is ready to lead his people into Canaan, he kind of lists some of the sins they were involved in. and says, do not follow their example. In fact, in Leviticus 18, verses 1 to 24, it lists 12 different forms of sexual sins that dominated Canaanite life. And along with those, he adds adultery, child sacrifice, all kinds of other sexual perversions like bestiality. And then God concludes with this warning to his people. In Leviticus 18.24, he says, Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled, the peoples inside the land, which I am casting out before you. I'm taking them out to put you in. Now look, some people say, well, that wasn't fair to the people that lived there. To quote Peter, God is um, patient and long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And he gave these people 400 years to repent. 400 years. But look, at one point his patience and grace comes to an end. And then his judgment has to fall. For the Amorites, their cup would be full in 400 years, which was the time the Israeli invasion of Canaan started under Joshua. Listen, that was an act of justice, not aggression. It was an act of justice, not aggression. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's. The, earth, the whole earth belongs to God. And everything that is in it, everything, all belongs to him. And those nations that refuse to obey him, that flaunt their sins in the face of a holy God, he is patient, he is long-suffering, he is giving them time to repent. But if they refuse to repent, at one point he will judge them. He has to. He's a righteous God. Now, 
In our text, it says the Amorites had 400 years. I'm wondering how long America has before our indignation is full and God brings his judgment upon us. You know, we think we are the guys with the white hats. And I'm not saying that America has not been an influence for good in the world over the years. I, I believe that in many ways. But once we were a nation under God, once we were a people that feared God, we obeyed God, just like Israel did when they were first founded. But like Israel, we have drifted. We have drifted away from God. We have gotten into all kinds of immoral practices like Israel did. I mean, as Billy Graham once said, if God doesn't judge America, he owes an apology to Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, look at what we are involved in in this country. Look at the sins that we used to blush at. We just flaunt now. I mean, gay marriage and all kinds of other things. We're just flaunting in the face of God. And God in the past has judged those nations eventually who refused to repent and has replaced them with others. This is God's earth. If you know, he lets us live on his planet, and if we won't honor him as a people in one area, he take people out, put another group in, because he can do that. He's God. The earth belongs to him. You know, Donald Gray Barnhouse said, one of my favorite commentators, he said, if the iniquity of the world had been full 100 years ago, in other words, if the world's iniquity had reached the point where God was going to judge it, uh, as we see in the book of Revelation, chapter 6 through 19, uh, if that had happened 100 years ago, he said, well, none of us would have been born to be born again. So praise God for his patience. And guys, that is the real lesson of this verse, verse 16. It's not the length of a generation. It is the patience of our God. How God is so patient, so long-suffering. But as we talked about Sunday, don't push it. Don't push it. The goodness of God leads us to repentance. That's true. But God's grace is a two-edged sword. God gives us grace, which means time to repent. As I'm talking about people who are unsaved now, okay? And God's very patient. He really is, he waits a long time for some people. And if they eventually will repent, then praise the Lord. Then God's grace went to good use. But here's the downside of that. The longer a person lives in rebellion and doesn't repent, the more they are storing up wrath and judgment for themselves in the day of judgment. So, I mean, you know, yeah, if you come to Christ at 100, God bless, okay? Praise the Lord. If you don't come to Christ and you die at 100, boy, there's a lot of years of sin there you're going to have to be accountable for. So it's always best to just get your life right with God right now while there's still time. Verse 17, And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces, those animal parts. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, uh, the Canaanites, uh, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, Canaanites, Gergesites, and everybody else, Je Jebusites, uh, giving them their land. He's, he's removing them to give Israel that land. Guys, if you were to look at a map, that covers 300,000 square miles. You know how much Israel, at the height of their glory, David, Solomon, you know how much they possessed? 
30,000 square miles. They never came close to possessing all that God promised them. How much has God promised you and I, the greatness of his promises to us, all that is ours in Christ, and yet we only possess a very small amount? Why is that? Because we don't believe, or we don't really fight. We just give in to the enemy. We give in to our flesh, like Israel finally did. They got tired of fighting. They just made a, a treaty with the enemy. God said, don't ever do that. Don't make a treaty with the enemy, because you're only going to give the enemy a foothold from which to dominate you and, and conquer you again. And I see that's a testimony of a lot of Christians who once had victory in different areas of their lives, but they got tired of fighting, stopped marching forward, started sliding backwards. And you know how that goes, started making treaties with the flesh, not getting up early to come to church or staying in the Word or whatever it might be, and then finally you start sliding backward. I don't know about you, but I want to possess all that God has for me. I want to possess it all. Now, we are at a very important place in this chapter. Verse 6, the first very important place. Now we come to the covenant uh, that God made with Abram. Very, very important covenant, okay? First of all, we see Abram's out, okay? I believe he's, he's knocked out at this point. And God, in the form of a smoking oven and burning torch, passes through those pieces. It's called the Shekinah glory. And we know that because the smoking oven reminds us of the pillar of cloud representing God's presence in Exodus 13, verses 21 to 22, the smoke on Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, verse 18, and the cloud of God's Shekinah glory in places like 1 Kings 8, verses 10 to 12. The burning torch reminds us of the pillar of fire representing the presence of God as spoken of in Exodus 13, verses 21 and 2, of the burning bush displaying the presence of God before Moses in Exodus 3, verse 4, and then the fire that often came down from heaven to devour certain sacrifices uh, that please God. We see this in 1 Kings 18, 38, 1 Chronicles 21, 26, 2 Chronicles 7, verse 1. And I just speak those for reference. You can get the CD or go online if you want to write them down. What am I saying? I'm saying these represent God. Remember the in the wilderness, uh, by day God was a pillar of cloud, by night a pillar of fire. It spoke of his Shekinah glory, his resplendent glory, the presence of God. So when it says that a burning torch and smoking oven passed through those animal parts, that was just another way of saying the presence of God passed through those animal parts. Now the important thing to understand is that verse 18, don't miss this, tells us that God, God made a covenant with Abram. Not that God and Abram made a covenant with each other. It doesn't say that. It says God made a covenant with Abram. This, guys, was a unilateral, which means a one-party, unconditional covenant that God made with Abram. Only God passed through those animal parts while Abram was asleep. Abram and his descendants didn't have any terms to fulfill. They didn't have any promises to keep. It was a promise that God was basically making with himself. That's what a unilateral covenant is. It's one person promising somebody something which they don't have any terms to fulfill. I'm just going to give you this. Usually it's attached to a will. When a person dies in the will, they'll say, if it's a unilateral covenant, uh, when I die you get this possession or whatever. 
but they don't have to fulfill any terms. They just It's just a promise that the person is making to them when they die, we'll say. And God was making this promise to Abram and his descendants, a promise that God was making unilaterally. I mean, Abram or his descendants didn't have any terms to fulfill. They didn't have any promises to keep. It was just something that God promised to do for the Jewish people, to give them the land of Canaan. And again, the covenant couldn't be voided or annulled because of unfaithfulness on the part of Abraham or his descendants because, listen again, it wasn't a bilateral or a two-party covenant. It was a unilateral covenant. Therefore, it was unconditional. See, in the Mosaic covenant, when God brought them out of Egypt and brought them to the base of Sinai, he entered into a covenant with them called the Mosaic covenant. This was a bilateral covenant. God says, look, I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. Now, if you want that, then I will give you the terms of the covenant, the Ten Commandments of the law. And if you keep the terms of the covenant, then I promise I'm going to bless you materially beyond any nation on the face of the earth. It was a two-party contract. Of course, Israel was not faithful to keep their end of the contract. They broke God's laws all over the place. In fact, when, they, when God proposed the, the, the Mosaic Covenant, so what do you think? He was, oh yeah, we like that. We want that. All right, Moses, come up on top of the mountain. I'll give you the terms of the covenant. While he's up there, what the people do down in the valley? Made a golden calf. The very first commandment of the, of the uh, Decalogue, the Ten Commandments was, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or an image of anything on the earth or under the earth or in, in the air to bow down or worship. But here they made a golden calf. So... Bilateral covenant's not too good for us because we don't keep the covenant too well. We're not good at keeping promises. But one author put it this way, said, and I quote, This was an unconditional, unilateral covenant. God, with astounding condescension, uh, was symbolizing that if he were to break his word, this is interesting. See, it's a one-party contract. God's make, making a promise to Israel. Remember now the cutting of a covenant. And uh, what you were saying, if you ever broke it, that may I be like this animal, right? God was making this astounding covenant, uh, symbolizing that if he were to break his word, he would be sundered, or in other words, cut in two, like the butchered animals. It was an acted-out curse, a divine self-imprecation, guaranteeing that Abram's descendants would get the land or God would die. And of course, God cannot die. So it was unconditional. One author put it this way. He said, This covenant God signed alone. Abram did not haggle with God over the terms. God established and Abram accepted. Abram could not break a covenant he has never signed. End quote. So all this talk that because Israel wasn't faithful, that they ultimately rejected their Messiah, therefore they, they forfeited the covenant, is ridiculous. It was never a bilateral covenant to begin with. It was simply a promise God was making to the Jewish people. Now, as we bring this to a close, what about the question we brought up earlier from Hebrews 6 when it says that the covenant God made with Abram has brought hope to all of us who are Christians? Okay? A hope for us in the new covenant that is to us an anchor for the soul, sure and steadfast. Remember we read that out of Hebrews. So he's talking about the covenant God made with Abram. How it was sure. How God not only gave a verbal promise, he also entered into this blood covenant, right? 
by two immutable things, two immutable promises, which God cannot lie. This covenant was established. And he starts talking about how it blesses us, how it's an it's a anchor for our soul, both sure and step, as we're thinking, well, how does that work? How does the covenant God made with Abram affect us as Christians in the New, in the new Testament or the New Covenant? Well, the New Covenant is connected with the covenant God made with Abraham and his descendants. You say, how? Turn to Galatians 3. It's only one verse, but I want you to see it, maybe underline it. This is a pivotal verse for understanding this whole deal. Okay, How does this covenant God made with Abram or Abraham affect us and bless us? Galatians 3.29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. There it is. The very promise that God made with Abram and his descendants because we are children of Abraham by faith, we become the recipients of that very promise. So our faith in Jesus, or so by our faith in Jesus, we are now spiritual descendants of Abraham and heirs of the promise God gave to him and his children. And the ultimate promise, the ultimate land that God promised all of Abraham's children, guys, uh, all who believe in the Messiah that Abraham believed in, uh, the ultimate promise of land. I'm not saying that uh, that the land of Israel is not a literal part of the promise, okay? I'm not saying that. Yes, that land is theirs. But the ultimate promise of land, I believe, speaks of heaven as our heavenly homeland. Uh, I think that that really is the ultimate promise that uh, God is making here that we will enter into one day this ultimate incredible promise as we suffer on this earth for Jesus' sake, but yet we enter into a glorious eternity. This promised land ultimately will be in heaven. And, um, but it, it's just a beautiful thing to think about that um, just as the covenant God made with Abram was unilateral and unconditional, so is the new covenant that Jesus Christ made with all of us. I mean, again, we're so grateful that Jesus did all the work. As we're coming up to Good Friday, we're going to talk about this, how that Jesus paid the price. He paid it all. Uh, he died. His blood was spilled. He was the Passover lamb. That if we put our faith in him, his blood is applied to our hearts by faith, and the judgment of God passes over us. I mean, if the new covenant was bilateral, a bilateral covenant, dependent upon God to keep his part, give us eternal life, if man kept his part, our part of the covenant, to keep the law, well, then none of us would be saved. None of us would be. If the new covenant was bilateral, goodbye heaven, none of us are going to get there. Okay, none of us. If it was all dependent on my keeping the law, then you know what? Uh, I'm not getting to heaven. No way. That's why God took it out of our hands. He took it out of our hands. He made a unilateral, unconditional covenant with us. He just promised himself something. He promised himself to give us eternal life if we would believe in his son. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not the result of good works, lest any should boast. We all know that. And how about Romans 4, verse 16? Therefore it is of faith, eternal life, that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, in other words, the Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who was the father of us all. The point is that in the new covenant, 
we receive God's promise of eternal life by simply believing in and receiving Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. I mean, if the promise of salvation, guys, was based on our keeping the law, the promise would be worthless of eternal life. It would be worthless because it would be based on conditions, listen, that no one would be able to meet. It would be like if God said, look, I promise to give you eternal life if you jump across the Grand Canyon. Well, that promise is meaningless. It's worthless because no one could meet that condition. The same thing is true if God promised the person eternal life if they led a, led a sinless life. Well, that promise would also be worthless, worthless because no one could meet that condition. But if God said to us, which he did, I promise to give you eternal life if you believe in my son based on what he did and not based upon what you do, that's a promise I can get my hands around. That's a great promise. Because listen, it's a promise that is attainable because everyone, everyone can believe. Anyone can believe. Therefore, anyone can be saved. And that's why God could promise us eternal life. Listen, the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the very moment we put our faith in Christ, God promised us in 1 John 5, verse 13, that we have, not working toward, we have eternal life. Because it's based on what he did for us and not upon what we do for him. That's why from the cross, Jesus cried, it is finished. Aren't you glad he didn't cry, hey, it's almost finished? I did my part. Now it's up to you. I'm rooting for you. Try real hard. Come on, you can make it. Look, if it was by our works, he couldn't have promised us eternal life, which, listen, is uninterrupted life for all eternity. Uninterrupted life for all eternity. If it was by our works, he couldn't have promised us that the moment we put our faith in Jesus. All the Lord could have said to us was, all right, well, you put your faith in my son, but now it's up to you, though, to finish the work I began, as we just said. If you live a good enough life and you work real hard and, and all and keep the commandments and so on, then, you know, we'll see if you earn eternal life. When you die, if you've been good enough, you'll receive it. But he didn't say that. He said the moment we put our faith in Christ, we have eternal life. You see, the fact that God promised it to us instantly and forever, the moment we put our faith in Jesus testifies. Listen, it testifies to the fact that it was by grace that we're saved, not by works. And, of course, we, you can develop this in detail looking at Galatians 3, Romans 4. Paul says in Romans 4, look, either eternal life is a gift we receive or it is a reward we earn. You can't have it both ways. You can't say that uh, it's a gift we earn. You don't earn a gift. So either you're working for, either God says you work for salvation or you receive it as a free gift. Some churches say, well, it's both. Okay, it's a, it's a gift of grace, but you have to earn it. That's absolutely contrary to everything the Bible says about eternal life. And Paul just nails it in Romans 4. He says, look, let's get down to the bottom of this. Either salvation... Or eternal life is something we earn through our good works or it's a gift we receive by our faith. It can't be both. And we know it's a gift we receive by faith. And listen, this is why I love this section because as Abraham and his descendants had no terms to fulfill, no promises to keep, otherwise they would forfeit God's promise. No, God simply said, I promise to do this for you. 
I promise to give you this, the land of Canaan. Well, God has promised to give us the land of heaven, okay, eternal life. And like the covenant he made with Abraham, we don't have to do anything. I mean, you can't forfeit a promise that God didn't attach terms to. Well, what happened with Abraham? Well, he was asleep, right, when God made the promise to him, right? When did God make the promise to us? Well, we were sleeping how? We were dead in trespasses and sins. That's how God made the promise. We didn't work at all for our eternal life. He just gave us the grace to understand it. We received it. Boom, we were made alive. I, I really feel sorry for those Christians who are always making their salvation dependent upon what they do and how they live. I'm not saying that we should not take seriously uh, the responsibility to live a holy life. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Just because I believe in eternal security doesn't mean I want to live a, a careless, uh, sinful life because, after all, I'm saved by grace. If you really know the Lord, you will never adopt that attitude. Never. If anyone who says, I'm a Christian, I'm saved by grace, I can live any way I want to me, they don't know the Lord. They don't know the Lord. A, a true spirit-filled believer in Jesus Christ would never, ever use God's grace as a license to sin. But I'll tell you what, what a great comfort to know that even when I blow it, I'll never get kicked out of the family. God doesn't punish his children. He corrects, he disciplines. But we're children. Children receive inheritance. They don't work for an inheritance, they receive it. We have been given an inheritance through Jesus Christ. And it's not something we have to work for. It's ours because, because of our faith in Jesus. So, very important chapter, uh, Genesis 15. And um, I hope you'll maybe meditate on this a little bit more and uh, kind of really get it into your heart exactly what's going on here. Because the same kind of covenant God made with Abram, he made with us through Christ. And I'm so thankful it's unconditional. Father, we thank you for your promise to us. Lord, a promise that can't be annulled, can't be changed, because you made it with yourself and you're not going to change it. You're unchanging. And Lord, we just thank you that you have promised us eternal life based on what Jesus did, not based on what we do. Anyone can believe, therefore anyone can be saved. We just thank you, Lord. And we ask you to give us grace to live for you, though, that we would not um, abuse your grace that we would always, Lord, live a life of holiness to honor you, that the world might look at us and see we're different. And as they look at us and see we're different, they come to us maybe and ask us why we're different. We can tell them about you. So we thank you, Lord. Father, we ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word through Genesis. Bless our service on Good Friday in a couple days. We're going to probably have a lot of people. Many of them may not know you. Lord, we pray that you would prepare hearts even now that you'll speak to my heart about what you want to say that night, and that you'll bring it forth in the power of your Spirit to touch hearts, open eyes, save the lost, but also to sanctify and encourage your people. And of course, Lord, for uh, Resurrection Sunday, again, Lord, speak to my heart about what you want to say, and Lord, any unbelievers there that day, save them. And the rest who are your children, Lord, just impress upon us the incredible riches of your grace. We just thank you, Lord. Father, we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.